Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's a couple of seconds before four o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here for another two hours. Thanks to Chris. This program this week, I report on all things GM with Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network, historian and author Brian McKinlay, and I believe his talk could be called The Virus of Fascism. Mexico, a country no stranger to protests and demonstrations, I'll be speaking to Professor Emeritus Barry Carr from La Trobe University, the Latin American Studies there, and Dr. Tim Anderson has just come back from Syria, Greece, Germany and Lebanon and he'll be talking about his travels and also the prospects for the whole region with the coup, the so-called coup in Turkey. Let's start off with Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when who would have thought terra nullius kids abused by the incorrection system which locks them up for our own good? Thank goodness we don't treat terra nullius adults that way. It's a kind of balance. We are shocked at that maltreatment of children, Mal said. Sorry, big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull said. Uh, up north, Malcolm. Uh, yes, up north. What about the mistreatment of children up north of the north? Uh, North Darwin, you mean? Try Nauru, Manus, Christmas Islands. Oh, our humanitarian, no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people policy. Those children are locked up for life to prevent them drowning. Drowning in despair is, or could be, an unnecessary side effect of our non-discriminatory humanitarianism. I I say unnecessary, because whether they despair or not is up to them reflecting our great belief in the rights of the individual, in individual freedom. Terra nullius people obviously exercise their freedom not to be free big time. Then again, with perfect timing, Malcolm outlined our welcome balance on racism generally just last week, reminding us True Blue Aussie has a non-discriminatory immigration policy, a non-discriminatory humanitarian policy. We do not discriminate against all those people on Nauru, Manus, Christmas Island. We treat them all equally and with equal humanity. I said who would have thought, but the up north minister for being incorrect, self stink, said he hadn't bothered to watch the torture tapes and, well, he didn't need to. That's why he's the minister. He's a very aware man. He did apologise for not commenting further at this stage. Sorry, but the screws haven't handed me my script yet. The diametrically opposite view to what really happened script. Exactly. Although I would say their version of the same events. But we must try to talk Malcolm out of this royal con mission because did you notice as Four Corners interviewed that barrister a big, big photo of Karl Marx on his wall? In other words, the whole show was a commie plot. The poor screws and the poor minister and the poor government and the poor system were set up by the commie plant who released the evidence. 
And for goodness sake, we've had the Terra Nullius deaths in custody report for 25 years, so the problem has been long solved. On non-races, we noticed Parliament's biggest supporter of Zion, Michael Almost Dunby, was almost done by his electorate. Almost lost his seat three weeks ago, but to his credit, he maintained his principles. Telling his Zionist audience in Zionist bits of his electorate, he would defy his party's head office and not preference the pro-Palestine evil Greens, handing out a how-to-vote card supporting his principled stance. Down the road, in the Greens are good Albert Park bit of his electorate, he handed out a different how-to-vote card, preferencing the Greens, which must also have been supporting his principled stand. It certainly was, he explained. The principle is to keep my bum on the plush seat. And on men of principle, I'm sure we're all relieved that man who's devoted his life to the downtrodden, that doyen of the left, Kimmel Loves Car Companies, was able to continue his great work for the downtrodden. Where would the working people of this country be without him? Can't understand why the so-called left is upset with Kim Il just because he organised votes for supremo little Billy Shorten ambition against his own left candidate three years ago and organised numbers for little Billy to retain the we are as cruel as the government refugee policy against left opposition at the last socialist federal conference. Meaning concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats are obviously left wing policy. So little Billy had to extend the shadow lot by two, rip 40 grand off one bloke to stick in Kimmel's back kick and have Kimmel endorsed by the right so he's now a right-wing appointment. But then who'll notice the what difference? On oh, little Billy said it was because there was so much talent in the Socialist Party. But must ask him who? bit of reassurance as far as we can be reassuring to anyone tiptoeing nervously following a warning by the Turkish ambassador to Trublowozzi about that USO-based cleric Guru Nowhere. They are staging a coup in a democratic country. At this stage it may not be a threat in Trublowozzi, but you can never be sure because it happened in Turkey. Good point and good of him to warn us, but I've got a feeling it's unlikely, okay, a rough chance, but unlikely we'll see an attempted coup to overthrow Malcolm and the team by elements of the Turkish military. Although a bit of a rift between Turkey's big supremo heard him up again and the US of the UN of the US of the world over demands on extraditing Guru Nowhere. As the US says, we'd like to see some proof. And Turkey says, the proof is we suspect him. And the US OB says, have you got anything a, a touch stronger? And Turkey says, just send him back. Suspicion is ample proof. And why not? Because if he's sent back, we can be sure he'd get a fair hearing and fair execution. Back here, this federal court judge last week gave international US of based energy giant Chev wrong to pay workers permission to sue the evil maritime union for $10 million over evil, 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 unprotected action just because the environmentally sensitive corporation exercised its obviously protected right to sack or, sorry, sadly let go its workforce and employ non-union low-paid seamen prepared to do an un 
unfair day's work for an even more unfair day's pay, thereby declaring it legal to sadly let go workers and illegal to take action to protect your job, not be sadly let go. But then apparently they could have taken legal action. Uh, which would be, Your Honour? Well, let me see. Legal action. Yes, yes. Well, legal action, you ask. Yes, yes. Yes, they could have taken legal action. Uh, yes, but what? How? Uh, well, let me see. Uh, legal action. Uh, oh, of course, they could write a letter to their local caring business class member of parliament. Woolworths Trillions took legal protected action yesterday and announced it would sack, or sorry, suddenly let go, hundreds of workers. Uh, yes, economic guru Scuttlebeam Moore Lashson told us they've explained their reasons. So if the workers withdrew their labour in protest before they sadly let go, they too would have reasonable reasons? They would feel the full force of the law for hurting their caring employer through unprotected, irresponsible action. Well, I'll ask you as well then, uh, what legal action could they take? We would expect them to seek, no, no, get, secure a new job as soon as possible and not bludge on the public purse. These irresponsible idlers are potential dole bludgers. Although, let me say, if they did take unprotected illegal action, it would be contrary to the responsible and welcome stand of the Shopping the Workers' Good Good Trade Union. And Woolworths Trillions took protected action, sacking uh, correction, having to sadly let go, whatever, protected action? Certainly, they are protecting their profits. That's the most legal protected action there is. Protecting the environment, well, obviously, because the sundry chambers of profits, including the fossil pollution resource industry chamber of profits, have lauded Malcolm's decision to put environment and energy in the same ministry. Some cruel cynics might say put environment under energy, but, it, but all's well, because they also have praised appointing Josh Friedem Icebergs as minister responsible, and we suspect he'll be responsible for lots of things, and Josh supports action on climate change, but recognises coal, good, good, clean, lifting the world's poor out of poverty, coal will be the major source of world energy for, say, 40 or 50 years, showing what an optimist Josh is, believing Mother Earth will survive all that lifting the poor out of poverty. Maybe that's his answer to poverty. It's really compassion. Then again, little Billy has appointed an environment shadow and a separate climate change shadow. We must ask little Billy which bit of climate change has nothing to do with the environment. And now, a short week that was sport, sponsored by Safe Jab, your favourite syringe. Russia announced graciously that if it had been banned from all events at the Olympics, it would not boycott Rio. Raising just a small point, like the tip of your favourite Safe Jab syringe, if they were banned, what exactly would they have been boycotting? Oh, and a Russian cyclist won Wednesday's stage of the Tour de France, but this being cycling, we know he wouldn't have been anywhere near drugs nor anything performance enhancing. That was the week that was sport, sponsored by Safe Jab, your favourite syringe. And finally, the guest speaker at the True Blue Aussie Retailers Profits Association's Awards next month will be this founder of a business described as a social enterprise tackling global poverty, which currently has about 40 items under its brand.
That must explain why we've all noted there is so little poverty left in the world. That or lifting the poor out of, out of good, clean coal. But we're told he's a dynamic speaker. Unnecessary, because anyone who can convince people flogging his product will end world poverty must have the gift of the gab. How exciting. The very system which causes poverty will end poverty. Oh, look, Josh Dempry Icebergs is nodding. Good afternoon. And once again, it's many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. Today, it's the monthly discussion on all things GM, genetically modified organisms, with Bob Phelps, who's the director of Gene Ethics Network. Starting today, Bob, with stories about the amount of GM being planted in Australia and in particular in Western Australia. Conflicting stories. Yes, well, there is movement all over the place on the uh, figures that Monsanto is issuing about genetically manipulated canola. This year they're saying that there's been a record area of canola grown, but when you look at the figures you find that in fact they've fudged it by changing the seeding rate. That's the rate at which farmers actually plant seed in the field. This year it's 2 kilograms a hectare, last year 2.3 kilograms and the year before 2.5. They're selling a lot less seed but claiming that their farmers are growing a lot more GM canola. Really the figures don't add up. We see a general decline in uh, GM seed sales nationally. They're down 12% from 2015 in WA, 40% from 2014. So a 40% drop in two years is really pretty major. And in Victoria here, they've slumped by a third since 2014 as well. So the figures are gradually starting to drift out. We see that uh, genetically manipulated canola and Monsanto company are really on the back foot. Monsanto, of course, is under the hammer at the moment with uh, another takeover bid from Bayer Crop Science. So it may be that Monsanto will be no more before the end of this year. Just before you look at that issue, does this mean that the journalists who are writing these stories aren't sort of taking enough care with the figures? Well, I think it's different from that. You have to do a little bit of digging, and this time a young journalist from the Weekly Times has dug around quite well, I think, to show how the figures were actually fixed, whereas uh, the others just take the media release and republish it. You get Monsanto's spin story about its wonderful genetically manipulated crops and in the other you've got a journalist who at least has scratched the surface a little bit and somehow or another her editor has allowed her to ignore the fact that the newspapers are generally threatened by the companies over their uh, advertising budgets. That's where the leverage comes. I thought there might be something like that and that gives the the importance of a, a station like 3CR. Yes, independent journalism where you're not dependent on uh, revenues from advertising and uh, so you get away with it. We also find too that unfortunately when we do get a good run with a journalist who suddenly takes an interest in our issue and manages to get an editor to pick the story up from time to time, unfortunately they generally get threatened after the story's published, which is very unfortunate because uh, there are very few investigative journalists around these days and programs that will put things to air or print them as a result, we've got the uh, PR machines of people like CropLife, which is the national representative of the global network of uh, agrochemical industries and GM, with their big budget for PR 
uh, putting heat on people who would speak up. Just on that takeover by Bayer Monsanto, it's been going for quite a while now. Has it reached a point? Well, it's pretty hard to say. The Monsanto board has rejected much earlier in the year, I think it might have even been last year, rejected the initial proposal for $63 billion as the price of a takeover, and it's now been bumped up to over $80 billion, and the board is still pretty resistant. So there are difficulties on both sides. Some of Bayer's main investors are saying we don't want anything to do with Monsanto. It's a dead duck industry. Uh, GM is on the way out, and uh, buying Monsanto wouldn't be a good idea. And on the other side, you've got the Monsanto people saying, no, our company's worth more. Our shareholders deserve a better price. So we'll see how it plays out. But they're following the trend, really. Uh, There are only three other main players in the field now, beside Bayer and Monsanto. Very soon we could see just four mega companies owning the global seed, both GM and conventional seed supply, and also the agrochemical supply globally. So our food supply is falling more and more under the influence and control of just uh, this handful of mega companies who we already see uh, collaborating with each other through uh, licensing agreements and so on to uh, jack up prices to farmers and, of course, to shoppers as well. And, of course, all this puts great pressure on groups and organisations who are seed-saving around the world. Well, yes. I mean, the main seed savers are still farmers, of course. That's good for them. But uh, in international markets now, there's a whole lot of pressure for the grain traders not to accept anything that's outside the norm. So the hybrid seed, the patented genetically manipulated seed, these are the benchmarks for saleability in the global food commodity market people who are saving their own seed and growing open pollinated varieties that don't attract these kinds of technology fees are now uh, finding it more difficult to market their products. And that's why it's so important that we get back to uh, local food production and consumption systems like farmers markets and so on, where the growers and, and the shoppers can get together, feed themselves well, give our farmers a uh, viable living we can have food security and sovereignty in Australia because at the moment our governments are absolutely focused on export exports of uh, these mass-produced commodities through industrial farming systems. Farms are getting bigger as uh, farmers either get too old or go broke. The aggregations of land are getting bigger and bigger and of course the corporates are now taking a big interest as well many from overseas buying up Australian farmland. These are not good trends. They threaten the future food security of uh, our kids and grandchildren and uh, we need to get on to some more local and uh, life-affirming food production systems to ensure that future generations can be fed as well as we are. An issue that you've been talking about for quite a while is that GM product labelling. seems that the US is far above what we're doing here. I wouldn't say far above. That's got a, a checkered history as well. Some states in the USA have had initiatives over the last couple of years to require the labelling of all GM foods. Vermont in particular, its new law came in on the 1st of July. As a result, there's been a conspiracy, I'd say, between the Democrats and the Republicans in the Federal Congress and in the Senate in the USA. There's now agreement on a national law which prohibits states passing their own laws, and as a result, that's now 
passing and it looks like Obama's going to sign off on it very shortly. And I imagine that it'll be a pretty Mickey Mouse system of food labelling, just as it's been here, where anything that's, for, ex for example, a vegetable oil, a starch or a sugar is exempt from any labelling because it's claimed that it doesn't contain any DNA or protein that would differentiate between the genetically manipulated varieties and the conventional. However, that's not the view that the market takes. Our sales of uh, GM canola into Europe are not acceptable. They require, with zero tolerance, only GM-free product. That's what they require. They're prepared to pay up to $70 a tonne more for it. The vast majority of Australian canola remains GM-free and goes into the European market. Meanwhile, we get the GM products here in our own food supply. Can you explain to me what the Productivity Commission has got to do with GM food? The Productivity Commission, of course, which is a bunch of uh, economists who have got uh, neoliberal views, have been investigating various aspects of regulation in agriculture with a view to slashing red tape, which has been one of the mantras of the Liberal National Party government. And, of course, now that they're re-elected, they're even going for it more. So the Productivity Commission issued a report last week uh, which, among many other things, which is supposedly red tape to free up farmers, uh, recommend that uh, the labelling on genetically manipulated foods in Australia be removed as well. So we're going backwards while the US at least nominally is going forward on GM food labelling. It's a very retrograde step. I don't know that it's going to get any legs because it will have to go to the food forum which at the, at the moment is implementing the uh, recommendations of the labelling logic report which has been out for a couple of years which has covered every aspect of food labelling and in that report inquiry recommended that GM food labelling continue for 30 years so that's fairly good whether the commission can intervene with that I really don't know, but certainly it would fit in with uh, the way that our federal government is thinking. So we have work to do there on defending GM food labelling. The other thing that uh, the Productivity Commission particularly wants to knock off is the power of state governments to set up GM and GM-free zones for marketing reasons. So at the moment we've got South Australia, Tasmania and the ACT all with bans on the growing of genetically manipulated crops within their jurisdictions. The Productivity Commission would like to take that power away. We've got pressure in Western Australia from the state government with a, a repeal bill in its parliament, which will probably come up in a couple of weeks, which would have that effect of giving away the state's sovereignty to the federal government. So if a new genetically engineered crop plant, for instance, came before the Office of Gene Technology Regulator, which is the federal regulator, and got a tick as far as its friendliness to the environment and public health was concerned, and that's most likely since they've never rejected anything in their lives, then the states would simply have to wear the fact that the new GM wheat or oats or barley could be grown in their state. They would have no say over whether or not it could be grown for marketing reasons. So their farmers, the vast majority of whom will remain GM-free, would have to wear the fact that these contaminating crop plants would then be grown over their neighbour's fence and there would be nothing that they could do about it.
well, it's just a retrograde step at the moment, the protection of having the states and territories also involved in the system and particularly being able to take care of the interests of their farmers is, is critical to the national uniform system, but it's a power that the federal government and the industry want to take away. So we're going to have a serious fight about that. Does the Productivity Commission take notice of people's objections or are they sort of a, a rubber stamp for the farming industry? Well, not just for the farming industry. They're a rubber stamp for their particular ideological views. In this instance, it's the farming? Well, it's, it's supposed farming interests, but, I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, Monsanto, Bayer, Dow mm. and BAS if don't represent the interests of farmers. True. Moreover, I think the National Farmers Federation, which doesn't really represent farmers either, and even the state farming organisations these days, which are very pro-GM on the whole, have a diminishing or declining number of members. Uh, they don't represent the vast mass of our 134,000 farmers in Australia. Farmers are basically unrepresented. They get hung out to dry. Uh, all the time and remain price takers rather than price makers because of the way that public policy is structured. So the Productivity Commission didn't consult the public seriously. It went to industry. It uh, held meetings with industry when it wrote its draft report, which came out last Thursday. And now that there's a draft of uh, what it thinks should happen, they are going to hold some public hearings. And one of those will be on the 17th of August, from 9am at their headquarters in 350 Collins Street in Melbourne. It's open to uh, the presenters and we're hoping to be among those now that we're onto this and we've uh, been to meet them previously. Uh, we had a big row on the day that we met because of their ideological position and uh, visitors will also be welcome so it would be great to have some support there. That's on the 17th at 9, 350 Collins Street. You don't at feel as though you're beating your head against a brick wall? Oh, well, that wouldn't be new, would it? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's what social movements are about, you know. Uh, you push against the wall, uh, you keep pushing, and then at some point the wall falls down and you walk through, just like the uh, Berlin Wall. But you don't give up. Uh, as I said, when I got a call from one of the pro-GM people last week, he said, uh, oh, you know, you should give up, Bob. The repeal bill in Western Australia will be going through in a couple of weeks. It's hopeless, you know, forget it. And I just said back to him, well, I've been campaigning on this since 1988 and I'm not about to give up now, Bill. Bill can just like that or lump it. But to me, his phone call out of the blue, an hour long of uh, trying to justify their position, shows that they're in a weak position, not a strong position. So I felt quite good about that phone call, really. Yeah, but you did. <laughs> no till Bill Crabtree gave me a call. It's the first time I've ever spoken to him though we've been antagonists in the public news media for probably a decade or more. Knock your head against the brick wall and finally the brick will break. Now, what's happening in Russia? I know they've got bans on them, they've got economic Gosh. boycotts, they've got everything going against them. They do, and Putin's talking about the nation going organic, which is really nice. And one of the first initiatives is a new law to ban... GM animal feed imports because the vast majority of genetically manipulated crops, particularly soybean and corn, are actually going into animal feed. We import a lot of it into Australia, for instance. It's unlabeled and it ends up being fed to chickens and pigs here in Australia. But in Russia, they don't want it. They've made a commitment to keep 
GM animal feed imports out, so the meat, eggs and milk that uh, those animals produce will be GM free, which contrasts with the situation in Australia, as mentioned, where we're getting imports of some half a billion tonnes a year of GM soy and corn from North and South America, and also actually in Europe even, where um, they've fudged their rules, and despite the fact that Almost everything that's GM needs to be labelled. The products of animals fed GM feed do not need to be labelled. People don't want to eat it. It goes either into animal feed or into ethanol production these days. We need to clean up the animal feed here in Australia as well. What we've been saying to government is at the very least that there be two streams of production and that the products be labelled. We haven't got anywhere with that yet, but we're certainly soldiering on to try to get some sense in the situation so that farmers, the vast majority of farmers, at least 100,000, want to stay GM-free. They should be empowered to do so by the feed that they buy, buy in being properly labelled so they can make a, a decision about what they feed to their animals. Gene editing, that's something you've been speaking about over the last months. Warning signs in the industry of um, insurance. Yes, well, these are the new genetic manipulation technologies coming along. The old ones, which we're familiar with now, which were invented in the 20th century, have produced a few crop plants, just five main broadacre crop plants, the soybean, corn, canola and cotton, with two traits. And the two traits are, of course, herbicide tolerance, tolerance of Roundup in particular, and the BT insect toxins. The reason they were able to do that with those particular traits is that they involve the cutting and pasting of a single gene between a donor organism and a crop plant or a microorganism or an animal indeed. But the transfer of that single gene been the reason that in some cases it's been able to be accomplished into microorganisms also, for example, for the production of human insulin contained in industrial vats. That's a very limited technology in that most traits, including things like our eye colour, hair colour and so on, are actually mediated by a multiplicity of genes interacting with each other. And there's been no way with that technology that you could genetically manipulated multigenic traits. So those more complex multigenic traits have not been amenable to uh, gene manipulation so far. However, there is now a new set of techniques being developed which are collectively called gene editing or synthetic biology. These carry new threats, but unfortunately we're having a huge argument globally and here in Australia with the regulators who are saying, look, we don't think these new GM gene editing techniques come under the definition of genetic manipulation and we are not sure that we're going to regulate them. And that, of course... A new technology like this does need some assessment and regulation as a precautionary measure and our governments seem reluctant to do that. So that's another public policy debate that we're having at the moment. The proponents, of course, are saying this gene editing could be used in humans and indeed there's also some human gene editing going on in Britain. The development of new biological weapons and, of course, in the commercial production of new microorganisms for, for producing materials in factories and also crop plants, animals and microbes for release to the environment. This research is going on a pace. The regulators are not ready. 
The public doesn't know much about it. So this debate needs to be escalated to the next level where we can say, yes, governments must take this seriously. This is an innovation that brings new threats and hazards into the food supply, into public health, and we've got to do something about it and urgently. The election is now over. Are there enough Greens and other crossbenchers in the lower house and possibly in the upper house to keep tabs on what the government's doing in relation to GM? Well, it depends on the position of the Labor Party again, because in the lower house, at least, they will hold the balance of power. Joel Fitzgibbon was on, um, who's the shadow agriculture minister, was on the 7.30 report last week, and I'm afraid (laughs) his position was pretty waffly. What position they'll take, I don't know. They sent us a letter in response to our questionnaire prior to the election. They just really recounted the current situation. Whether they would go along with government in the sorts of reforms that government really wants, dismantling the system, as I mentioned, uh, I don't know, but we're going to have to have some serious talks with them. As far as the Senate's concerned, of course, the counting's still not finalised. It looks as though the Greens may lose some of their seats. They've had 10, and it could be as few as seven. It's hard to say what the position of people like Pauline Hanson and Jackie Lambie might be, Bob Catter. These are people who would probably go along with the government, I'd say. So uh, we're going to be having some serious talks with the Greens, Nick Xenophon and some other independents to try to cobble together uh, with the ALP a majority so that we can say regulation is necessary. New technologies have many unique risks and hazards. Uh, They need to be dealt with in a rational and scientific way. So we need to amend the current system of regulation to embrace these uh, new gene editing, uh, synthetic biology and other really quite radical innovative technologies in all areas which are coming along and make sure that uh, the precautionary principle is applied to them, that we not be reckless and allow companies to simply go ahead and pick up the pieces afterwards, as has happened so often with uh, things, the asbestos, the pharmaceuticals that have gone wrong and so on. And thanks to Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network. And if you're interested in finding out more on their webpage, Gene Ethics Network, particularly about the Productivity Commission public hearing, which is going to be held in two or three weeks' time. So that's the Gene Ethics Network. IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. It's Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And now we hear from historian and author Brian McKinlay. Jane, in recent months I've been looking at this program and uh, talking uh, about the uh, First World War and the Russian Revolution and all the effects of those important events on human history. As I do in this program, I mention books I've been looking at in the hope that people might track 
some of these comments down and I've been very much enlivened by reading a, a brilliant book by a, a British historian, well, a British-German slash historian, Professor Philip Bloom, called Rupture, and I think I've mentioned this earlier. Funny name, by the way, it sounds like a medical textbook, but Rupture is about the rupture of European society following the First World War. It's hard to overestimate the classic crisis that engulfed Europe and which led on, of course, to the Second World War. So you may see the two world wars as part of a sort of European civil war, more especially the Second World War, which was very much more ideological in the sense that it really was a war against fascism. Now, today I'm going to look at fascism and its modern equivalents, which I think are all around us. And I mention people like Trump, Marie Le Pen in France, Pauline Hanson here. None of them, of course, would accept the title fascist and they would uh, angrily retreat from that. But in many ways, all these so-called right-wing populist movements, which have sprung up in the West, broadly speaking, since the financial crisis, the global financial crisis of 2008, saw the collapse of American banks and plunged the United States into the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. Now, all sorts of groups and people have to be blamed for this crisis. Among them, by the way, uh, the president of the time, Bill Clinton, who, well, the previous president, I should say, who unleashed the banks. And I use the word unleashed like you'd speak about a mad dog, because history shows again and again and again that the banking system, at the very heart of capitalism, is often the cause of great financial crises. The, the great Melbourne crash of 1891, the end of Marvellous Melbourne, as it was called, was triggered by a bank crash in Britain and in Argentina and Australia, which plunged the world into a massive depression like that of the 1930s. And there are other parallels too. Now, at the end of the First World War, the predictions of a number of critics before the war were borne out in the full that no one could win a great war and everyone would be financially and physically worse off. That was so obvious by 1919. Germany in ruins and, and France too. A Germany swept by a revolution. Britain with an enormous debt incurred to the United States. Only the United States emerged from the First World War with... Um, no great economic crisis. Europe, of course, everywhere was influenced by the most important effect, I suppose, of the war, and that had been the revolution in Russia, which had brought to power uh, a new kind of government pledged to a socialist state. But, of course, not a democracy, a, a military state run by the Communist Party and its Red Army. So all of these events traumatised Europe. Uh, and indeed made an effect around the world. I mean, even people like a young John Curtin in Perth, uh, later to be a Labor Prime Minister, a um, middle-aged John Curtin, I should say, was much affected by these events and wondered if revolution would even come to Australia. This is in the aftermath of the war. It seems fanciful now, but Curtin and many others believed that the worldwide crisis would 
trigger off socialist revolutions everywhere. Now, in our time, we've seen something of a parallel with all this, with the aftermath of the global financial crisis. But if we look at Europe, it might be interesting to look at the country which actually gave the world the word for fascism, and that was Italy. Now, Italy was on the Allied side in the First World War, and when the war ended in Italy in 1918, the, uh, the Italians took land and territory along its borders to the north that had belonged to the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had collapsed completely. And Italy uh, took back the port, for instance, of Trieste, which Italian nationalists had wanted for years. But none of this solved Italy's problems. Italy had run up a huge debt to finance the war, Hundreds of thousands of Italian men had died, and Italy was in great financial problems. The Italian working class before the war had been very well organised in terms of its trade union movement and a very large socialist party. One of the leading socialists was a man called Mussolini, but the war changed Mussolini as it changed Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister of Australia at the time. Both of them became passionate, we have to use the word warmongers, and also passionate nationalists. And when the war ended in 1918 and 19, the Italians, far from profiting from the war, found themselves worse off than they'd ever been. Mussolini now formed a new party, having broken with the socialists and become very anti-communist uh, and anti the Russian Revolution. He formed a new party using the word fascisti, which was a, a Roman word which related to the law, and to a bundle of sticks bound together, which was a symbol of law in Rome, ancient Rome, and he revived this symbol as the symbol of his new party. Now, the fascist party, of course, claimed to be radical in an attempt to attract working-class voters, but in fact it was soon supported by right-wing groups uh, and the fascist movement became a bitter enemy on the streets of the socialists and the newly formed Italian Communist Party. And literally street battles raged in the major cities. Demonstrations run by one party or the other would turn into riots and uh, Mussolini formed what were called the Squadristi. Now these squads of young fascists armed became a threat to law and order and people were murdered and beaten to death and um, or by fascist groups. Um, and by the way, there's a marvellous film by a man called Bertolacci. Now, uh, in, in about 1975, Bertolucci ra ran and made a wonderful film called 1900. And it's about two Italian men, babies, born on the same day in 1900 and living through all the events to the end of the Second World War. One, the son of a rich landowner, the other, uh, the son of a poor peasant couple, and their lives affected by all these great events. Just after the Second World War, it became clear that Italy was seeing the possibility of a socialist government, which frightened the elites and the wealthy, or uh, uh, some right-wing group to save it from that fate. Now Mussolini's fascist movement did just that. Italy was a constitutional monarchy with a king and an elected parliament. But the, the parliament was weak, the right of centre parties were uh, in no way willing to tackle the fascists, and the king was 
an opportunist and a, a greedy, silly man, Victor Emmanuel, and um, between them they made it possible for Mussolini's uh, group in 1922 to actually stage a coup. They called it the March on Rome, and they moved groups of people to Rome, uh, literally surrounded the capital, blocked the roads and railways, and then moved into the city and forced the resignation of the government, and the king then appointed Mussolini as head of state. Well, uh, head of government. The king was head of state. Suddenly, Italians found themselves with a fascist government after what was effectively a coup, a fairly bloodless coup. And oddly enough, if the government of the day had had the, the wit and the will to oppose Mussolini, we know his supporters would have melted away pretty quickly. But they didn't use the army or the police, and so Italy fell into their hands, as someone said, like a ripe piece of fruit. And so this opened up more than 20 years of fascist rule in Italy. Now, this new idea was something new in Europe and indeed around the world. And for a little while, people believed Mussolini's propaganda, which was pretty well run, uh, that Italy was improving. He got this uh, result, of course, by falsifying statistics. Famously about the rail services, it was said he made the trains run on time. That became a legend in, in the time. And even some people on the left for a while wondered about Mussolini and would he affect social change in Italy. But quite early in the piece, people were shocked beyond belief by the murder of the leader of the opposition, Mattiotti, who was also a, a leader of the Socialist Party. All of the political parties were now banned. Trade unions were banned. Uh, newspapers were censored. And Mattiotti was kidnapped in Rome and murdered by a fascist gang. His body was found, and indeed it seems Mussolini didn't know of the plan of his supporters, some of them, to murder Mattiotti. But the, the murder of the leader of the Socialist Party and the leader of the opposition caused a tremendous stir throughout Europe and made people on the left realise what fascism really was about. But Italy went then into two decades of fascist rule, which was ended during the middle of the Second World War by the Allied invasion of Italy and the collapse of Mussolini's regime. Mussolini also had Italian colonies, and one of the first of these was Libya, where he tried out all sorts of experiments with driving the Libyans from what little farmland the country possessed and bringing in Italian settlers in a quite ruthless way. There was a, a long-running uprising in Libya against the Italian fascists, which was eventually suppressed with great bloodshed and much suffering by the Libyan people, who had to endure all these long years of fascist rule until World War II. So, in other parts of Europe, uh, right-wing groups saw fascism as a, a new idea and, and one they could well take up. Quite early in the 1920s, a fascist regime came to power in Hungary and later in Austria in the early 30s and of course infamously in Germany in 1933 Hitler who was a great admirer of Mussolini uh, Hitler was the leader of a quite minor party in Germany but swept to power by the economic crisis of 1929-30 and so on which we call the depression and uh, in Germany, the, the collapse of the German economy 
brought millions of Germans to vote for the Nazis, who after all won a, an election, not exactly a free election, but they won an election in 1933, and as, um, as Mussolini had done, the Nazis immediately set about destroying the trade union movement and uh, destroying all political parties, not just the parties of the left. And Germany had a large socialist party and a large communist party, uh, which unfortunately couldn't agree to cooperate in the march to power by Hitler. And even parties like the Catholic Centre Party, the parent of Angela Merkel's Christian Democrat Party in Germany today, were all banned and its their members arrested, in many cases murdered, by the Nazis. So this was the pattern of fascism. Uh, an American um, musician, uh, a man called Woody Guthrie, who was very anti-fascist in the 30s, came up with a, la a clever comment on fascism. Someone asked him at, a, at an anti-fascist rally in New York, at which he played, he was a very famous guitarist, can you give a definition of fascism? He said, it's simple. Fascism is capitalism plus murder. I don't think you could get a better description. And another American writer, because of fascist movements that appeared in America too, against President Roosevelt, who was a Democrat very much of the left, and uh, the fascists gained support in America from big business and right-wing groups everywhere, led by a very famous man, in a sense, a man called Lindbergh, who had been the first American aviator to fly the Atlantic. And Lindbergh became a great admirer later of Nazi Germany and spent much of the Second World War in internment in America. The other comment about American fascism, equally as brilliant, was a writer who said when fascism comes to the United States, it will be carrying the cross and wrapped in the flag. Now, can you think of a better description than those right-wing extremists and populists in the present-day Republican Party, the Christian fundamentalists who have taken over much of the Republican Party in the name of the Tea Party? Carrying the cross and wrapped in the flag, you could hardly find a better description of American fascism. Now, all of these events, of course, led to World War II. Spain, I might add, saw in 1936 the election of a, uh, a left-wing government and fascist groups there unable to win in the polls and faced with a, a left-wing popular front, as it was called, government, turned to armed struggle, stage a coup which failed in, in essence and were rescued from the disaster of their failed coup which people everywhere in Spain had resisted with force of arms in the big cities, Barcelona and Madrid, which left-wing groups overwhelmed the military coup plotters and uh, Franco, the leader of the coup, appealed to Hitler and Mussolini to come to his aid. Now, they did, and the cowardice of the British and the French governments, which didn't aid the Spanish legal, Spanish government, saw Spain plunged into the worst conflict in Europe since the First World War. And over a million Spaniards died in the civil war that followed and saw by 1939 Franco in power and uh, taking a terrible toll on everyone in, who, who deposed him. Hundreds of thousands of Spaniards were jailed, tens of thousands were 
murdered in concentration camps. And Spain went into a long, dark night of fascism, as had happened, of course, in Portugal. Uh, so by 1940, when France fell to the Nazis, the ultimate success of fascism right across Europe could be seen. De democratic countries like Holland and Denmark and Norway had been overwhelmed by the Nazis. France had fallen, and the Nazis replaced that with what was called the Vichy government. And France was run by a group of fascists. The same was true in Hungary and Austria, Italy, Spain, and so on. And so by the time of the Battle of Britain in 1940, only England remained really outside, only Britain, I should say, remained outside the Nazis' control. And fascist governments ruled everywhere, including Eastern Europe with countries like Bulgaria and Romania. Uh, however, the turning of the tide would come with Hitler's invasion of Russia, which was his main target, actually, and the sheer strength of the Russian resistance, the saving of Moscow, other great battles that the Russians won in the next couple of years, turned the tide, and eventually the Russian Red Army pushed the Nazis out of Russia and into Eastern Europe and in eventually to Germany. And the same event, in another kind of way, was happening in Italy, where the invasion of Italy by Allied forces had seen Mussolini's government collapse and he was overthrown by the king, who'd supported him for 20 years, but now feared for his own throne, which eventually he lost, of course, and Italy became a republic. And so all over Europe, Allied forces, the Red Army, and popular resistance movements, generally led everywhere by the left, especially in France, took power as the Nazis retreated. And so everywhere in Europe, fascist regimes were swept away, except in Spain. But everywhere else, fascist leaders were, in many cases, jailed for their collaboration with the Nazis. In France, the leaders of the Vichy government were all executed or jailed for life. And this was the pattern over much of Europe. It, it happened like that in Italy, too. Now... Since 1945, one would have thought fascism pretty much dead. But, of course, it wasn't and isn't. Many populist movements, like Marie Le Pen in France, have always had very fascist tendencies. And even the style of their utterances have had fascist overtones. But they were seen as minority parties. But in the last six or eight years, since the global financial crisis caused widespread unemployment and economic suffering, these groups have picked up. And, and like the early fascist movements, they are loud, they are nationalistic, they are racist. This time, it, instead of, as the Germans did, using the Jews as a target, the fascist groups, I suppose we'd call them neo-fascist groups, uh, like Le Pen and the others, have a ready-made target in attacking Muslims, who, of course, have streamed into Europe after the collapse of regimes in Libya and in Syria and elsewhere, and the Iraq War, of course. All of these events, of course, brought about by the folly of Western intervention in Libya or in Iraq, <clears throat> and the millions of refugees whom we've seen flooding into Europe have now become the target of the hatred of these right-wing groups. And it's no coincidence here in Australia that Pauline Hanson, who 20 years ago started her career by attacking Aborigines, 
and the money they were supposedly getting from the government, and then Asian immigrants, uh, Vietnamese in particular, and who 20 years later has found another target. If you listen to her attacks on Muslims, you'll hear the, the authentic voice of Pauline Hanson and the sort of quasi-right-wing fascist ideas that come from her mouth. And she, in fact, as I said earlier, is much of a part with Trump. Now, Trump in the United States, as we know, has got another racial group, and that's the Mexicans. And his talk of building a great wall along the Rio Grande to keep Mexican illegal immigrants out. And his attacks on Hispanics and others were all part of this quasi-fascist movement that he has created and in fact taken over the Republican Party in a curious way like Mussolini in Italy took over the uh, established political parties of the 1920s. So all of this seems to be a product of right-wing populism from the economic crash of 2008 and we see real parallels between the fascist movements of the 20s and 30s and the right-wing populist movements of our time. It might be that capitalism sort of has the virus of fascism in its system, only waiting to take over when capitalism gets a chill or becomes ill, as it did in the, the 20s with the Great Depression and in our time. And this virus of fascism flares up and many people who want to blame the system but don't want to support the left drift into supporting people like Trump or Hanson. I find Hanson, having got 400,000 votes here at the federal election, is a very interesting figure, uh, however deplorable, and an interesting comparison with those groups like Le Pen in France and with the, uh, with the Trump people in the United States. Now, where will all this lead? Will we see Trump actually take power in the United States? Will we see Le Pen win the next French elections? In Britain, of course, the right-wing groups have won a victory over Brexit. And it's typical of these groups, by the way, that they're opposed to any international ideas, whether it be the United Nations or the European community. They see all those ideas as left-wing ideas. And one would hardly say many of those groups are left-wing, but that's the view. Adolf Hitler, for instance, hated international ideas. He called his Nazi party originally the National Socialists. He claimed to be uh, a reformer, even a revolutionary. And in a way, he was right. But he used the word socialist in a, a way that none of us would recognise. The word national socialist inferred his idea of German society would be a German one and have no relation to the international, the worldwide socialist movement, whom he opposed bitterly. So we also see this anti-internationalism present in Britain and uh, in the United States with Trump attacking all sorts of international groups and the, the broad racism mostly now directed at Muslims is very typical of fascist groups and the way they operate so uh, it will be interesting in, in the days and months ahead to see how far this quasi-fascist movement in the United States proceeds 
Of course, one thing that has to be said about all these fascist movements, in the end, none of them had any success with any kind of social or economic reforms. And in the case of the Nazis, as we know, uh, they dragged all the European fascist movements into World War II, a catastrophic event, which eventually destroyed them, literally. Hitler and his gang were all uh, killed or captured by the Russians in the bunker, and Mussolini quite fittingly was rounded up by a communist group as he tried to flee to Switzerland and was executed. So European fascism collapsed because it had led to war but it also had achieved nothing in social or economic terms and uh, hopefully these right-wing populist groups will be seen as ineffective as they always are. I don't doubt uh, if she can ever keep her mouth shut if Pauline Hanson has any ideas of any value on anything. But this is the nature of this sort of fascist populism. And that was Brian McKinlay, author and historian, speaking about the virus of fascism. Pretty good phrase, isn't it? Coming up to... Oh, it's just turned five o'clock. Got another hour to go. We'll be talking about Mexico next and then it will be to the Middle East and Europe. Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, Sunday 14th of August. Brunswick Town Hall, Wurundjeri Land, 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick. 10am to 5pm. Free entry. Stalls, workshops, films, food. Childcare and kids space available all day. For more information, go to amelbournebookfair.org. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. Arm yourself with ideas. A 3CR supporter. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. It's ten years since the Mexican state responded with a massive show of force to break up what was known as the Oaxaca Commune. For six months, the people brought the government of the southern state to a virtual standstill. And now, ten years on, it is the teachers again who are at the forefront of challenging the government and meeting the same brutal force by the state. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Barry Carr, Emeritus Professor at La Trobe University, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Latin American Studies, and we're first talking about Oaxaca, but then more broadly about Mexico in 2016 and what has brought it to the situation. First, Barry, as I explained, people were mobilising 10 years ago. Why are they mobilising in 2016, and are they the same people? Mexican politics is full of mobilizations, uh, especially in, the, in recent years because of the uh, kinds of challenges that ordinary Mexicans face every day politically and economically and because of the uh, increasing use by the government in Mexico of force, both police and, and the army, to repress protest movements. But certainly in Oaxaca, which is one of the southern states of Mexico, about an hour by plane south of Mexico City, mobilizations have reached quite a climax over the last six or seven weeks. Why? 
Well, it's really, in the case of Oaxaca and also another southern state, Chiapas, it's uh, about a protest by school teachers. But these are school teachers who, for the most part, work in very poor areas of cities and also very remote rural communities. Oaxaca is a, one of the poorest states in Mexico and still largely rural. Teachers in Mexico are, have been protesting recent decisions by the government of President Peña Nieto to carry out uh, what the government calls is an educational reform. An education reform for the Peña Nieto administration involves curbing the unionists. Uh, teachers are heavily u- organized in unions in Mexico. And to uh, use uh, a new series of testing procedures as a way of getting rid of pesky teachers. So currently the big, the biggest protest is about an attempt by the government to impose a series of tests on teachers which if teachers fail those tests will lead to their dismissal. There's also the claim that they're abandoning education of the indigenous poor, is that correct? There's a lot of indigenous people in Oaxaca. Uh, it's just one of those states where there's uh, a very major indigenous language-speaking population. And a lot of the teachers in Mexico historically have been the principal source not only of teaching and literacy work, but also of supporting everyday economic and social life. So teachers in Mexico are organized in a, the largest union in Latin America. It's actually a very corrupt union, at least the official union is. But the protests that are, are happening in Oaxaca are protests by a dissident group of uh, teachers who are fed up with not only the government's measures, but also with the very, very corrupt leadership of the union, which is notorious uh, in Mexico for not really serving the interests of their members. The big demonstrations 10 years ago in Oaxaca, did they achieve anything? In the longer term, I don't know that very much has been achieved. I mean, sometimes governments are changed, state governments are changed, but the state government administrations more or less pursue the same kinds of of policies. I think everybody in Mexico acknowledges that education needs to be reformed in a good sense of that word reform, because, uh, I mean, Mexico is at the very bottom of all the tables of the OECD when it comes to uh, education performance, and certainly uh, the government doesn't spend enough money, um, teachers are not adequately trained, they're under-resourced, they're very, very poorly paid. But it's the kind of reforms that the government is pushing, which are suspected by many people, and I think they're absolutely right, as being the sort of thin end of a wedge designed to uh, put down militant teachers and to avoid the really big issues about the education budget. And the result has been not only a series of huge demonstrations, but lots of deaths recently. Last month, there were nine teachers who were killed in a fairly uh, in an in, in, a, in a rural community uh, not far from Oaxaca and the city of Oaxaca city city Oaxaca city which is the capital of the state and a major tourist destination has been sort of more or less cut off by road to the capital of the country uh, as a result of the actions by striking teachers who certainly have developed over the years quite a lot of very sophisticated techniques of making their voices heard. The case of the 43 student teachers who were abducted in 2014 and still missing, what is the story behind that? 
Well, those missing 43, and they still are missing, I mean, there were also some who were killed, and we do know about them because they were killed, actually, in the town of Iguala. That's still a bit of a mystery, although there have been a series of, uh, of in- investigations, the most important of them, the most credible, uh, gave their issued its report just uh, a couple of months ago, was a report by an international committee of experts. It does seem as though, uh, in some ways, without necessarily intending to be part of this, that the student teachers from a rural teacher training college, small community called Ayotzinapa, as part of a protest, uh, found themselves caught up in what was the, the drug business of gangs in the region. The, the students captured buses, which is part of their normal strategy for being able to travel anywhere in, in Mexico. And uh, clearly one of those buses, so this committee has uh, revealed, apparently has in the past been used to smuggle drugs to the, the United States. So when the students captured the bus without realizing what its past had been, uh, the drug gang seemed to have panicked. And as a result, they captured students probably definitely in connivance with the local police and maybe with the state police and certainly with the army, the local army detachment, being fully aware of what was happening but not intervening. And uh, those kids, they vanished, although the government claims that they found their bodies uh, and that the students' bodies were burnt uh, in a nearby rubbish dump. But nobody really, certainly not scientific experts, believes a word of the official story the government tells. Can you talk more about what you call the the drug business and its impact on Mexico? there is, of course, a, dr- a war on drugs that we all read about constantly in the newspaper, largely, I think, driven by the United States, which is the principal consumer of drugs produced in Mexico and elsewhere in Latin America. Mexico is a major producer, areas of the country of drugs, and it's uh, a major transit place through which drugs from other parts of Latin America pass. And the drug trade in Mexico is pretty powerful. It's been able to corrupt all levels of government, including the federal government, uh, as well as the the judiciary uh, and the military. The government's response, the Mexican government's response since really uh, the 1990s has been to repress, to militarize the country under pressure from the United States in order to eliminate the drug trade. Well, it's not been remotely successful. And uh, the militarization has simply led to a massive increase in human rights violations. So large parts of the country, not all parts of Mexico, most parts are not affected, but significant areas of Mexico now have become kind of war zones. And there's a big debate that's been raging about really what the best solution is. How does the the problem of the drug trade, how is it best uh, addressed? And the increasing number of people in Mexico, as well as in the United States, I think realize that uh, militarization simply compounds the problem and that somehow there has to be a recognition that this is the, the issue, the challenge has to be met politically and educationally and almost certainly through the legalization of certain kinds of, of drugs. But a lot of very high-profile people have made a lot of money out of this and there are stories about the the connection between people in the US like Hillary Clinton, the Bush family, who have who've got connections with drug cartels. 
Well, there's certainly no question at all but that the drug business can't function or couldn't function without the money and resources being laundered by banks, the big banks, including banks in the United States and banks in Britain and banks around the world, and without the tacit, if not enthusiastic, support of the police and of customs operations and of politicians on all sides. I think where the corruption, political corruption involving drugs is most obvious is actually in Mexico rather than in the United States because the ruling party in Mexico for many years, a party which has now returned to power known as the PRI, is notorious for its closeness to the drug cartels. And uh, the newspapers in Mexico over the last month or two have been full of information uh, released in a trial in the southern part in Texas of the links between the drug trade and, for example, a number of state governors of, of Mexico in the border region who are members of the, of the party in power. So that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get any action and change on the drug scene. There are just too many people who have an interest in drugs being the way they are at the moment. In other words, they, they have an interest in keeping drugs as an illegal activity. It's obviously not only the drug uh, cartels themselves who don't want there to be any kind of uh, legalization, but it's also the judges and the politicians and the drug enforcement agencies who, in all kinds of different ways, have an interest in keeping the, system, the current system alive. Being helped in many ways by that money coming in from the U.S., well, yes. I mean, the, mon the amount of money that's generated here, though it's difficult to calculate, is absolutely enormous. It's a huge sort of hidden export income for Mexico. It's obviously an enormous source of funds for uh, the drug industry and the people who launder drug money through the so-called straight economy, real estate and business and so on. It's a huge source of income for banks, many of which have been found guilty in recent times of collaborating in one way or another or colluding with the drug trade and nothing ever happens they're fined this is i'm talking here about banks fined in the united states but there's never any charges laid against uh, bank officials who go out completely uh, uh completely immune from prosecution but most seriously i think for mexico what the drug trade has done is it's led to a massive importation of hardware of of guns and, uh, and uh, military equipment which essentially the drug cartels in Mexico use, and there's uh, absolutely almost no way in which this uh, arms trade, which is entirely north to south, has been, there's no way it's been, it's been stopped because of the crazy position of the arms trade in, in the United States. So uh, Mexico, although it has a reputation of being a very dangerous place, actually the weapons that are used in Mexico, according to some recent surveys, of seized uh, arms, but about 90% of all the weapons used by the drug trade at the very top and at the very bottom uh, actually come from the United States. And does that help keep the government in power? Well, certainly the drug trade is a source of a lot of money that is useful during electoral campaigns and the drug cartels in Mexico are constantly boasting about how their money uh, has assisted politicians. It's obviously something they like to mention as a way of frightening politicians away from uh, doing anything about their 
about the uh, about the cartels for fear of being exposed. So there's no question but that political parties in Mexico have benefited uh, enormously, and far too many of them, really. Um, and that's, I think, the problem. The entire country has, in, in reality, has been corrupted by this trade, and it's a particularly nasty situation in which, since 2006... Uh, over a hundred thousand people, a hundred thousand people in Mexico have been killed, and about thirty thousand people have disappeared. And while we sort of know that most of the victims probably are members of rival cartels, a lot of people, a lot of those victims and disappeared people, are not. Uh, they're simply ordinary folk who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Are many of the drugs consumed in Mexico itself, or is it? More that it's the poor in the poor in the U.S. are being imprisoned because of their use of those drugs. Well, that's drugs. a very interesting question. Uh, up until about 20, 25 years ago, most I mean, drug consumption in Mexico was fairly low, except in rural areas, and except when you're talking about marijuana, which has been long been consumed in rural areas by peasants. But the so-called the hard drugs, the heroin and the cocaine, some I mean, cocaine is not produced in Mexico, but it's smuggled through Mexico. But heroin uh, is certainly uh, produced in Mexico. That was largely uh, for for export. But one of the sad things that's happened in, in the last 20 or 30 years is that a higher percentage now of drugs are actually consumed in Mexico with all the difficulties, economic and health problems that you would associate with uh, widespread consumptions. But still, most of the drugs, most of the big stuff is exported to the United States by Mexican cartels who have essentially taken over from the Colombians as the principal supplier of drugs to the U.S., and not only the U.S. market, but increasingly Europe and even Australia, where there's now more and more evidence that, that Australia is, is seen as a, a rather attractive market for the, uh, these cartels. This is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, and you're listening to an interview with Professor Barry Carr, Emeritus Professor at La Trobe University and Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Latin American Studies. Well, it's not only the drugs that transit through Mexico, it's the people, poorer people coming from Latin America. 47,000 killed during the past six years. That's horrendous, yes, isn't it? The, uh, Mexico is a transit point, obviously, for you know, tens of thousands of immigrants who come from Central America, from even poorer countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and so on, and who make their way through Mexico on the way to the United States. And they are victims not only of uh, the people smugglers and of corrupt local police, but increasingly these people, these immigrants, not Mexican, but they pass through Mexican territory, they're falling victim to the cartel. Some of the worst cases that have been uh, brought to light in the last three or four years of massacres of ordinary Mexicans by the cartels have actually involved uh, Central American immigrants. And although virtually none of these cases is ever investigated thoroughly, there is some evidence that the reason why immigrants from Central America are killed in such large numbers in Mexico by the cartels is because they're stopped by the cartels in roadblocks and they refuse, at least the men who were the targets, refuse. Those men who refuse to join up and, and become part of the cartels are simply slaughtered. Is it also a fact that it it's now takes a month for people to transit through Mexico where earlier times that they could get through quicker so they're they're open to exploitation in many ways now? Well I think the routes 
keep on changing and the, both the people who are involved in the smuggling process as well as the uh, immigrants themselves, they change their routes and they carry out, they have their own kind of intelligence networks for information. Uh, it is becoming more difficult uh, and it takes longer to pass through Mexico uh, because there are so many groups who are out to get uh, the immigrants and because on the US side the measures adopted by the US federal government have become more and more rigorous uh, and dangerous in recent years. And this is in spite of the fact that the current Obama administration is full of good words about the need to uh, you know, acknowledge the long-term benefits from uh, immigration from Mexico and Latin America. In fact, the number of arrests and deportations and the violence meted out to immigrants in the border area on the U.S. side uh, has actually grown. So, yeah, it's, it's taking longer, it's more dangerous, and people, when in those kinds of circumstances, take risks, uh, and taking risks sometimes involves migrant immigrants passing through desert areas and trying to cross rivers which shouldn't be crossed and of course many of them perish is it mainly men or do women and children try no, this too? The, well, the, the traditional pattern for immigration, including immigration from Mexico, is of men coming first, establishing you know, themselves, finding a job somewhere in, the North, in North America and then bringing their families with them if they have families, although quite a lot of immigrants, documented or undocumented, are young, very young men. They don't actually have families. You do those find uh, entire families, including children, trying to cross the U.S.-Mexican border. So it's not just uh, men, but certainly men have always been the sort of pioneers here. Now, the issue of a wall is topical at the moment with Donald Trump. What is there at the moment to make it very difficult for the people to get into the United States? Well, the border between the you know, United States and Mexico is a very long border. You know, it goes from the Pacific to the Gulf of Mexico. So there actually are walls there already, especially on the Californian side, which is one of the main sort of uh, transit zones. There are walls that are made of all kinds of material, including some of the metalwork that was used by the U.S. military in Iraq, for example. There are walls uh, of different kinds, uh, but there are also large stretches of the border uh, which are essentially not protected in any way. I mean, the Border Patrol and other forces, Border Protection people, they keep on changing their name, uh, do patrol the entire border, but there are many areas which are fairly remote and where it's rel relatively easy to cross. So when Trump says that he's going to build a wall, I think he's you know, not entirely, not very well informed. There actually is a wall uh, in many areas. But it's really his way of saying, of blaming, of trying to blame Mexico and Mexicans for some very genuine problems that do exist in the United States and on which he's been taking up a, a kind of um, a drum rolling and beating campaign. Is there, in a, in a sense, a, a wall at the other end too? Well, there's not a wall on the border between Mexico and Guatemala. That's the main southern border of Mexico, across which Central American immigrants come. There's not a wall there, although there are some sort of fences in certain areas, certain crossing points. But uh, the Mexican immigration authorities certainly patrol that border. I mean, immigration authorities patrol borders everywhere in the world. And so immigrants coming into Mexico through the south, through a state like Chiapas, which is the southernmost state that borders on Guatemala, certainly the first opposition and difficulties they face are 
from border, uh, the border patrols and immigrant groups, immigration groups on the southern border. But there isn't the massive metal and other fences that have been erected on the uh, Californian side of the border in recent years. A number of years ago, there were hundreds of women being killed in certain areas of Mexico. Was that ever established what the cause was? Well, I think you're referring there to the femicides that are sometimes being called in Ciudad Juarez, the Juarez city, which is a big Mexican city on the other side of the Texas border. On the other side is the big uh, Texan city of El Paso. Mm -hmm. And yes, there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, of women, young women for the most part, whose bodies were found in, in ravines and in sort of garbage dumps and so on, you know, on the outskirts of Ciudad Juarez. It's been going on for a very, very long time. The worst of the, the worst phase of that is now over, but the, but people are still disappearing. There's never been a real resolution of that. I mean, there have been some trials, there have been a number of men have been, have been put on trial, have faced trial, but uh, people who follow and track these developments very closely, both in Mexico and in El Paso, tell people, including me, that uh, in many cases the the men who've been put on trial simply are patsies. They're not, they're not people who are really responsible for the uh, for the killings, but they're kind of conveniently located individuals who are often tortured into admitting to involvement when, in fact, they probably weren't. So the the evidence as to as to what was going on there is is still unclear. There are a number of theories about what was going on, and uh, but none of them really hold uh, a great deal of, of water. But the horror behind those though, still is uh, smouldering in Ciudad Juarez. Is Mexico a, a dangerous place for women? Well, Mexico, in terms of its constitution and, and legal system, on paper is actually a very progressive country. I mean, it has been ever since the uh, begin, uh, 1917, the 1920s, and the, you know, the period of the early period of the Mexican Revolution. Uh, so the laws in Mexico are often very good more advice than they are here in Australia. The trouble is that they are is the implementation and execution of the laws, which often is generally is very is very, very poor. So uh, you ask the other question would it's difficult to answer that. It's a very large country, you know, hundred and twenty million people. Does the power of the Catholic Church have anything to do with Well the the Catholic Church certainly has not been I think how can we put it a great friend of, of women who are interested in liberating their lives economically, culturally, socially, sexually demographically and the catholic church in mexico is still a major a major influence on the other hand i think the power of the catholic church to influence things like reproductive health and uh, questions of the rights of sexual minorities gay men and women has declined in recent years and so we have this strange situation really of mexico a country where the law frequently the writ of the law doesn't run very deeply but it's also the country in Latin America today which has probably the best legal provision, the best legal situation for same-sex marriage, for example. I mean, six, seven, eight years ago, this was uh, illegal in Mexico. But suddenly, in recent years, both uh, at the level of state governments and even now federally, Mexico has the most advanced legislation on this issue. So it's a strange place in that sense. As far as women's safety in the street uh, that i think varies in, in the big some of the big cities that's not an issue although it depends partly on class 
But if you go to the, some of the border areas, if you're in areas where there's a lot of drug violence, recently Acapulco has emerged as one of the most, if not the most dangerous city in Mexico, then I think women uh, and children sort of certainly need to look out look after themselves very carefully. Has there been a, a push from the fundamental Protestant religions into Mexico? Yes, as it have been elsewhere in, in Latin America. I mean, fundamental. I mean, the Protestantism has, has grown, and that includes fundamentalist, very conservative, evangelical Protestant Christianity, Protestantism. But it's actually quite a complex story. Not all Protestant groups are evangelical, and not all the evangelical groups are very conservative and reactionary. But yeah, Mexico has seen a growth of, uh, of Protestantism with kind of mixed uh, mixed results. It's not though the country where uh, like Guatemala, where there's been an absolute, where there's been a huge growth in non-Catholic religious practice, the Catholic Church in Mexico still is pretty dominant. The immediate future for Mexico. Well, I, you know, I'm a long-time Mexico watcher, and I love the country dearly. I've lived and worked there and studied in the country over 45 years, and I wish Mexico very well on this. The media treats Mexico very poorly, sometimes justifiably, uh, but sometimes it confuses people because it's a very large country, and when people read about violence and terror and the drug war in, in one place, they tend to think that it happens everywhere else in the country. But uh, Mexico is still, I think, in the most part a safe country it's a country where there's been some improvement politically i mean it's a much more open diverse and plural society than it's been at the same time the economy of mexico is sluggish and it hasn't rewarded the bulk of the population the north american free trade agreement nafta has delivered rewards basically to the wealthy in certain privileged sections of the workforce and uh, the security situation and and the political situation is still terrible. I mean, we've talked about security, but politically, in spite of some political reform, which has allowed alternation of political parties in recent years, the whole case of the disappearance of those 43 kids, because that's what they were, teenagers and people in their early 20s in 2014, what it's done is it's really shown up the, the deep corruption and impunity of the political system involving virtually all the political parties and that's given rise in re the last couple of years to a sense of desperation i think amongst mexicans people are going around saying enough enough estamos hartos they say in spanish we're fed up there has to be some kind of a breakthrough politically but unfortunately i'm not seeing that on the radar screen finally barry are the zapatistas hanging in there down in southern mexico well, the Zapatistas, the EZLN are still there. I mean, the communities are still there in resistance, no question about that. But the power of the Zapatista movement to connect with and to pose issues and alternatives to the rest of Mexico, in other words, its national projection and engagement with Mexican society is now very weak uh, compared with what it was in the first six, seven years of the, uh, the Zapatista movement. No from between 1994 and 2000. So
So it, it's not a, to use that posh term, it's not an interlocutor of the kind nationally that it used to be. But nevertheless, every now and again, the Zapatistas will come out with some interesting analysis of the situation in Mexico. And locally in Chiapas, certainly, the Zapatistas are still a force and they're still paying a very heavy price, the, the movement and its supporters, for their campaign to improve social and economic and indigenous people's justice. And thanks to Professor Emeritus Barry Carr from the Trobe University. And hopefully in the next week or so, I'll be speaking to Barry about Cuba. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Academic and activist Dr Tim Anderson has just returned from a visit to a number of countries, including Syria, Lebanon, Greece and Germany. And I spoke with Tim earlier today. Tim, the event which has sickened the world is the beheading of a 12-year-old boy by US-backed rebels and the video of the death which occurred in Aleppo. This wouldn't be an isolated incident? No, it isn't. From the very beginning, from 2011, the groups associated with the Free Syrian Army, what the US calls moderate rebels, whichever country they come from, they've been publicising their own atrocity throughout Syria including the killing of children. It's been a constant, unfortunately, in this, um, in this war. How far were you able to travel this time? I only had a week this time, so I only went to Damascus. Um, it wasn't so much how far I could travel. Last year, this time last year, and that was before the Russian intervention, the Russian air power intervention, I was, went to all of the, the western cities from Latakia, Tartus, Homs, Damascus and Sweda in the south, and also in April this year to Palmyra, but I was only there for a week this month, and so I just was in Damascus. But you must have spoken to a lot of people. Yeah, always there's new people, old friends and new people. We are, uh, it's good when you go back to a place you've been to before that you, you have old friends and then you, you meet new people as well. And what's the stories? The current situation, as I see it, um, there's, there's a huge difference this time in July between Damascus and Aleppo. There's a, there's a terrible war raging in Aleppo as the government and its allies try and take back the, the second big city in Syria. But Damascus was quite peaceful. There was a bomb in Damascus two days ago, but really looking at this year, there hadn't been, there's hardly any bomb attacks on Damascus all of this year. And that's very different to two and three years ago where there were constant, almost every morning, mortaring of, of Damascus. So some areas of, uh, of Syria have been reclaimed. Indeed, as I said last year, most of the populated areas of Syria have been held by the army all this time, basically. Those online maps are rather misleading because they show territory, which is often, a lot of it is desert. But the major cities have uh, 
the, the most part of the major cities has always been held by the, the Syrian army. But surely most of the reporting on Syria is misleading. It is. It's misleading for a lot of different reasons, and one of them is that fact, you know, the fact that the territory held is, does not really uh, equal the populated areas of Syria. What's the psychological impact of all this five years of war? It's a very long time. Yes, that's a very good question. One of the big worries amongst um, Syrians, senior Syrians, is the, the impact, the psychological impact, particularly on children, but also the impact on the values of Syrian society. People there have grown up with a very strong commitment to pluralism and a deep sense of their heritage, which is not sectarian at all. You can see written in stone the, the pluralist history of Syria. But the war is, is having a, a cultural and, and psychological impact. For example, the um, young children watching atrocities while people are chanting um, the Shahada, God is great, Allahu Akbar, for example. A friend of mine, for example, said that she used to think that that expression was a, was a beautiful expression, and now she thinks it's dirty because of the way that religion has been associated with atrocities. So that's one of the, an example of the way in which there's, a, there's cultural damage going on in, in Syria. The authorities and teachers have tried to make it as normal as they can for the children. The children have always been at school? That's right. There's been around 4 million children at school at any given time, completing their exams, enrolling and so on, and they've celebrated this during the war. While I noticed just a couple of weeks ago in the Western media they had a story, children still go to school in Syria, and it was some children going to a school in a cave by some of the al-Qaeda groups who were running their own version of Quranic education in a cave, as though the, the public education system in Syria wasn't working. It's often the case that, uh, it's almost always the case that the Western media has been ignoring that great majority side of Syria, as they uh, ignore, for example, the fact that most of the people in Aleppo have been in government-held areas, and uh, all of the scandals about, uh, about Aleppo, and indeed there is a humanitarian crisis in Aleppo, but the focus of the Western media has always been on those areas occupied by the al-Qaeda groups. Are any refugees coming back to Syria yet? There's been quite a lot, uh, particularly since the, the Russian involvement in late September last year. Many hundreds of villages, for example, in northern Syria, which was overrun earlier last year, have gone back. People have gone back to Palmyra. People have gone back to Hama. And even there are people going back from the refugee camps in Jordan to Dara, where there's still fighting going on because of the crisis in supplies to refugee camps in, in Jordan, for example. A lot of people have gone back from Lebanon to Homs. Homs was virtually stabilised about a year ago, for example. So there are quite a lot that have gone back in various areas throughout Syria, but there's, there's areas uh, where there's still very hot fighting going on, particularly in Aleppo. From your point of view, how would you describe what it's like in Damascus now? What is a daily occurrence in Damascus? Is it a fairly stable and people are going around their business, people are going to work, children are going to school? Is that the situation or is it fear? Yes, um, no, there's, there's definitely a change in atmosphere in Damascus, although, as I said, there was a bomb there two days ago. But for most of this year, there hasn't been any bombing because the armed groups haven't been eliminated in uh, northeast countryside Damascus or in the south in Daraya, but they've been contained to, to a great degree. There's not a scorched earth policy there because, precisely because there are still some civilians in those areas. So the atmosphere within Damascus and the suburbs of Damascus is much more relaxed. People are going out at night, for example. You know, in the evenings you see a lot of people 
um, out on the streets in restaurants and cafes and sweet parlours and things like that. And there are what you call entertainment centres for children, large entertainment centres for children. Syrian population is very young. A lot of people, there are a lot of children, babies, and their parents are, are taking them out more and more uh, on the streets and people are more relaxed because, as I said before, for several years there were mortars uh, and rockets coming in almost every day into, into parts of eastern Damascus at least. And that has almost stopped. So there's a, there's a definite palpable change in, in the atmosphere in, in everyday life. And, I mean, everyday life has carried on for all of the time of this war because um, life goes on during a war, but there is a sense of relaxation in the old city, particularly parts of the old city where there was the shelling um, last year, for example. The other countries you visited have many refugees from Syria. Can you talk first about Lebanon, people there living a very precarious existence? There are still a lot of people on the streets in Beirut, for example, um, and a lot of Syrians, you know, begging, selling little things and so on, um, selling little items on the streets. But as I said, quite a lot have gone back, particularly to Homs, where a lot of the, the Christians came from, for example, uh, to Lebanon. A number of them have gone back. Uh, it's very hard to estimate, you know, how many there are. People were saying there was a huge amount a year or two ago, and uh, there, but there seems to be less now. The other countries you mentioned that I was in, well, I went to a conference in Greece on refugees, and I went to Berlin to talk about my book, which has come out in, in German now, too. And um, there are a lot of Syrian refugees in, in Germany, in Berlin in particular, and there are less in, in the Greek islands now than there were. You'd, you'd be aware that there's a, a type of NATO border force now in the Greek islands to block refugees coming from Turkey. And uh, a lot of the Syrians that have gone through there have left, and those camps now, for example, in Lesbos, where I was near Mytilene, there are still quite a lot of refugees there, thousands rather than tens of thousands, but they're from Pakistan, Afghanistan, a range of different countries. And where have they gone from Lesbos? Well, a lot of the Syrians have gone to Germany and to some other parts of Europe. I think the biggest population is probably has probably gone to Germany. Talk about the, the conference you attended. I believe they tried to stop you, or certain groups tried to stop you speaking. Yeah, there were some threats from a, a group in Britain, which was some Trotskyists and some Muslim Brotherhood people sort of joined together to support this idea of a, of a revolution in Syria. They made some threats, but none of them turned up at the conference. So there was, it was a normal type of conference about the refugees and also a lot of it about the future of the European Union and NATO. Actually, there was, there was virtually no anti-Syrian people at that conference at that time. So I gave my paper on the link between the, the war and the refugees. And how was that received? It was pretty well received, yeah. A lot of people... Interesting, one thing I noted was that there were a number of speakers from Britain and uh, some people, like Tariq Ali, who'd been anti-Syria to start with, they've changed their position largely because of the big debate about NATO intervention in Syria, which uh, most of them opposed. And now it's interesting to see that some people who were in the Stop the War Coalition and Tariq Ali, who were against Syria, are now admitting that this is a proxy war against Syria. They're not going on to say much positive about Syria, but they've changed their position to not attack Syria and to admit that it is indeed a, a NATO proxy war. Because one of the things that concerns a lot of the Europeans now is the role of NATO and the expansion, the encroachment on the borders of Russia, for example, the threats being made against Russia. And that, 
that in Germany, for example, which is more or less at the centre of European NATO, uh, there's a huge reaction against that. There was an opinion poll when I was there saying that more than 90% of people were unhappy and did not feel secure by the fact that NATO was making these provocations and threats against Russia. And what's the NATO role in Syria in 2016? Well, NATO has always led the proxy war against Syria, um, including the role of Turkey, for example. But the, the UK, France and the US have been the major uh, major protagonists against Syria, trying to overthrow the government, and backed by Turkey and, and the, other, the other main forces have been the Gulf monarchies, of course. So NATO's played a leading role in all of the wars from Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria, and I think that's been widely recognised in in Europe now, amongst the, amongst the thinkers in Europe at least. And what about the Gulf Kingdoms? What's their role in this year? Well, they've always been involved in financing yep. the operations of the NATO uh, actors, principally the US in, in the Middle East. So their finance, their purchase of arms from the US, UK and France for the use in all of these interventions across the Middle East, um, including in Libya. I didn't mention Libya before. Um, that's been very important. In the Syrian war in particular, it's been Turkey that's been critical because of that 800-kilometre border with Syria, which has been the main conduit of, of weapons and fighters from many, many different countries into Syria. Well, let's talk about Turkey now. The, the big question is, whose coup was it? It's a difficult question to answer. I don't really want to speculate on this. People have been saying lots of things, but I haven't seen very clear evidence about exactly who was behind it. We know how it's being taken advantage of. We know that uh, Erdogan has taken advantage of this to try and purge the state from anyone he sees as an opponent, not necessarily anything to do with the coup recently, but any sorts of opponents in the education system, the universities, to introduce Muslim Brotherhood characters into his government, which was one of the complaints from a lot of the, the players. But uh, I've read some contradictory things about who was behind it and what possible role the US may have had in it, but I'm an agnostic at this stage on exactly who was behind it. What we know for sure is that it's created a great deal of instability and fear in Turkey, and it's to some extent that's to the advantage of uh, the war going on in Syria because they've arrested a number of the generals who were along the border and helping manage the influx of ISIS terrorists and weapons into Syria. But just today I noticed that they found a, a huge weapons cache in, in the Mumbish area in Syria that's come from Turkey, from the Turkish army. So the instability in Turkey has disrupted that to some extent. I was in Damascus when we heard about the coup and, and uh, it was thought then at that stage that uh, Erdogan was in jail and there were huge celebrations in Damascus. They were firing tracer bullets into the air. Soldiers were kissing taxi drivers. So there was tremendous celebrations, but that was a little bit premature, it seems. Surely that many people being detained, questioned, jailed, a breakdown in certain areas of society, especially in the education field? Yes, interesting. There was never this type of uh, breakdown or, or division within Syria all the time that people have spoken about a Syrian war and insurrection and so on. They, but they say that over 16,000 have been detained just in, in recent days in Turkey and huge disruption in the, the armed forces um, and across the board there. So there are very deep divisions. If there was a U.S. hand in this, and you know, the speculation is that the U.S. had found Erdogan inconvenient for different reasons in their regional plans because they were... Well, some say that there was... Uh, that Erdogan was 
the move that Erdogan made to try and reconcile with Russia was contrary to US interests. I'm not so sure about that because, in a sense, Russia plays an important role for the US in trying to find a, a face-saving way out of the Syrian war. I believe that's what's happening now, that the US uh, knew some time back that it can't win in this situation. Its plan B was to try and partition Syria as it's been trying to partition Iraq. And if that fails, then I think it is failing in Syria, the plan B of partitioning, fragmenting Syria fails. The next plan, the plan C, will be to try and find a face-saving way out and to maintain a role in the region while putting the whole Syrian question on the back burner, just as they put Iran on the back burner, because it's, it's a certain that they don't like the US, whichever administration doesn't like independent states in a region and Israel feeling insecure there. So they haven't really warmed up to Iran, but they put it on the back burner, and I think that that may be coming with Syria too. And the significance of mending fences with Israel? In the case of Turkey, it's always had those sorts of relationships. It's been selling oil from Syria and Iraq in, into Israel. So that was coming in a sense, just as the role of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel is, is warming up now too. There are visits from Saudi figures to Israel. So that role, the, and, and indeed, you know, as a representative of NATO, has been on the cards for some time. A fair amount of rhetoric has come from Turkey, you know, anti-Israel, because the whole region, the whole Arab Muslim region, um, regards Israel as the enemy because of its ethnic cleansing of, of the Palestinian population, of course. But Turkey has, um, under Erdogan at least, has uh, always had that, um, that undercover relation with uh, Israel. And what does it mean for the Kurdish people, not only in Turkey but in the whole region, if um, it clamps down once again on the Kurds? Well, on the Turkish side of things, there are contradictory messages coming there. There's some suggestion that the uh, elements within the army involved in the coup were unhappy with some dialogue that was going on between Erdogan and the Kurds. This seems surprising to some of us, you know, who have witnessed like a very serious very serious war on, on the Kurdish population in, in Turkey, particularly in the middle of last year, which was linked to that big movement of refugees in the middle of last year, one of the factors that was linked to that. The situation in Syria and Iraq have always been rather different. That is to say that the situation of the Kurds in the region is quite complicated. The Barzani administration in Iraq has had this type of business relationship with Turkey while, while Erdogan has been killing their compatriots in, in Turkey, the biggest population of Kurds are in, of course, um, southeast Turkey. In Syria, the U.S. has been trying to play a, a Kurdish card through some limited support, and uh, I say limited because that's very important, to some of the, the Syrian Kurds, the YPG, in the northeast of the country. But the major supplier of arms to the YPG has been the Syrian army. So there's been good coordination between Syrian forces in northeast and some other parts of north Syria. On the part of the Syrian army, the YPG has never attacked the Syrian army, and indeed the US support or air support has failed at times for the YPG and also for the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a coalition of mainly YPG with some Arab allies in, in northeastern Syria. So that SDF um, really has stronger relationships with Damascus than it does with Washington. But of course, in that area, as also in Aleppo with the al-Qaeda groups, the US has had its agents, and Israel and Turkey and the UK and France have had their special forces, their spies, in with those agents. Now, one of the 
one of the things um, I heard of when I was in Syria just a few days ago was that um, the Al-Qaeda-occupied part of Aleppo, which is about down to about 200,000 people now, the government-controlled area is about 1.5 million people, that Al-Qaeda-operated area was cordoned off just in the last few weeks, completely cordoned off. This is the Syrian army's strategy always to try and cut off their supply lines, then put the pressure on them, get, the, get them to surrender, get the civilians out and so on. Um, that happened in, in that area of Aleppo, and there are a lot of agents, foreign agents in there. So John Kerry has been trying to get some type of ceasefire so they can get those agents out, but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen because this is an extremely important development in Syria. To retake the whole of Aleppo is going to be really the big... Uh, signal of the of the end of the of the war in Syria, not necessarily the end of the terrorism, but the strategic end of the war. It'll be relatively easy for the Syrian coalition to take over Raqqa and the parts of Derizur they don't have yet. Aleppo is the big one, really, but it's involved a lot of foreign agents from the NATO countries, in particular, in those areas. You mentioned that in relationship to the failed coup in Turkey. The Brotherhood. Can you just explain a little bit more to people who might not understand their role in that area? Yeah. The Muslim Brotherhood historically is an Islamist group that was founded in, in Egypt in the 1940s as a competitor to Arab nationalism. And Arab nationalism was always more popular, even in religious parts like Palestine, for example. The Palestinian population is very religious. But they've always, the, the people on the ground have always preferred a nationalist approach to a liberation struggle. The Muslim Brotherhood always had this idea, and it, it was you know exported from Egypt to Syria back in the 50s and 60s, that they would overcome their nationalist allies, create an Islamist community, and then fight the external power, whether it was a colonial power, Israel, for example. Israel has been happy with the Muslim Brotherhood tactics because it basically it sets an internal conflict between in the case of Palestine, the Palestinian Islamists and Palestinian nationalists. So in Syria, it's had a long history, too, of really competing with Arab nationalism and then going into an alliance with Saudi Wahhabism, which is very similar in ideology. That is to say, the Muslim Brotherhood has become very Salafi, very sectarian, and with the same sort of ideology as the Wahhabists, which is to be sectarian to the point of killing people from other faiths and attacking them. So... That alliance between the Muslim Brotherhood and the Wahhabists is really at the root of the jihadi ideology in Syria and Iraq these days, basically. So, yet there's tensions between them too because the Muslim Brotherhood is a, a, a regional network, whereas the Saudis want to control the jihadist groups that they fund. So, they share things, but they also compete to a certain extent. Initially, the, free, the so-called Free Syrian Army, which was really just a, a collection of groups united by their access to funds and arms by the NATO groups in the Gulf Monarchies. Brotherhood dominated the Free Syrian Army and the Saudis kept these Al-Qaeda groups, Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS, with the separate type of command, although they worked together basically. So there are, there are internal tensions between those groups as well as the common sort of sectarian ideology that they share. And what will it mean for Turkey if they get more power? Well, the ambition of Erdogan was to be a type of new neo-Ottoman figure that would dominate the region. That was really his ambitions is what led him into this trap with going from having a good relationship with Syria. I mean, Turkey had these foundations of secularism or pluralism similar to Syria in a way from their, from their nationalist origins a century ago. But he betrayed all of that, and there's a, there's a 
one part of the opposition to Erdogan in Turkey is the people that despise that approach of trying to destroy the nationalist foundations, which is the foundation of the army too, of Turkey into a into an Islamist sort of state. But Erdogan's been doing it with with the help from of NATO and with the help of the Saudis, for example, to create this this type of neo-Ottoman empire where he can dominate that region. And what does it mean now with people saying that ISIS is up against the wall in certain places and that there will be more attacks on the West? How are the West going to deal with that? Well, it's not really the West so much as Europe okay. and Turkey. I mean, there hasn't been really a, a blowback into North America, and this is part of the tension that's building within the NATO countries, let's say, uh, or, or let's say between Europe and the United States, because in Turkey I noticed that there's a very strong movement now against the aggressive role of, of NATO, and that they're linking what is going on with NATO in the Baltic states and Poland, that is to say on the borders of Russia, and what's going on in Ukraine with what's going on in the Middle East. Really, the NATO forces, remember, were in Afghanistan, so that part of the Middle East, right all the way through to the Baltic states, there's a type of a new wall. Uh, some of the Germans are talking about a new wall, that NATO is pushing this wall up against Russia, trying to trying to expand NATO eastward and, and southward. So there's a strong reaction to that. And where does this leave the, the US's plan for reorganising the Middle East? Well, in, in tatters, basically. Uh, and, and the important question is what comes out of that with the... If Syria is failing, it's not just that their their ambitions in Syria are failing and the ambitions of the Saudis and, the, and, the, and Erdogan in Syria are failing, but their entire plan for the Middle East, because Iraq is becoming increasingly integrated into this, what's called the axis of resistance. The U.S. still has economic sanctions against that entire axis. Let's remember there are economic sanctions still on the part of um, the U.S. against Iran, despite the agreement with Iran. Um, there are still sanctions against Iraq, there are sanctions against Syria, and there's a new set of sanctions against Hezbollah in Lebanon. So all of those countries, which are, were also historically excluded from membership in the World Trade Organization, have this type of economic pressures, and in the case of the financial sanctions, very severe uh, economic pressures, which the Europeans have been sucked into. But now the Europeans, in many respects, are saying, why are we having this aggression against Russia and the other countries. It's not necessarily in our interest. In particular with Russia, they have the Germans, for example, remember that 75 years ago their army invaded Russia and with disastrous consequences, and they don't want that sort of confrontation when they can have a constructive relationship with Russia. Much the same could be said about Turkey and, and the Middle Eastern countries, you know, because this turmoil in Turkey is affecting Europe. The blowback of terrorists, the conflict which is dividing economic links is not in the interests of Europe, but it doesn't affect the US quite in the same way at all. I mean, look at all of the, the terrorist attacks in Europe now. This sort of blowback is, is happening in France, but it's not happening in, in the US. Uh, and similarly with, with uh, Germany, they say the consequences they're facing of this confrontation with Russia is not at all the same thing that the US wants. So there are a series of confer conferences and discussions about this going on. The, the German foreign minister came out publicly and opposed his own government's approach to NATO and Russia, for example. I got the impression there's, there are really building tensions in, in Europe uh, over NATO and over the undemocratic nature of the European Union, particularly highlighted after Brexit in Britain, in the sense that, for example, the Trans-Atlantic Partnership Agreement, the new type of, for 
free trade agreement being pushed by the US is really being pushed in the EU without the idea of having a vote in any of those countries. They don't want a vote. They want it to be a technical policy that comes in. And so there's a reaction to that as well. And that's Dr Tim Anderson, who returned from the Middle East and Europe on Saturday. Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, Sunday 14th of August. Brunswick Town Hall, Wurundjeri Land, 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick, 10am to 5pm. Free entry. Stalls, workshops, films, food, childcare and kids space available all day. For more information, go to amelbournebookfair.org. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. Arm yourself with ideas. A 3CR supporter. And that's it for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four, but stay tuned. In just a moment, we'll have Done By Law.